Well, this is Easter Sunday, folks. This is the high point of the Christian calendar. This is our Super Bowl. This is our Stanley Cup playoffs. This is our Academy Awards. Jesus Christ rising from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil. No one else in history has ever been resurrected. Now, there's somebody out there who's going, wait a second, didn't Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Technically, Lazarus was resuscitated. Lazarus came back to life. Jesus gave him life. And Lazarus lived probably for another 40 or maybe even 50 years. But then Lazarus would have died. Jesus rose once. Resurrection is forever. It's that amazing sense where our body is the same. The disciples knew Jesus. They looked at Him and they knew Him. They they could touch Him. It was a real body, but it was transformed to live for all eternity. One of my favorite Christian authors is Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey very candidly writes one day about the, the day he found out that he had lost three friends. One was a retired man in excellent health. He fell over dead in a parking lot after dining out with his wife. Another was a young woman of only 40 years age, of age. She died in flames on the way to a church missions conference when a tanker truck rear-ended her car in the fog. And the third one was Yancey's good friend Bob, who died scuba diving at the bottom of Lake Michigan. He writes that life came to a halt three times that year. Yancey says, I spoke at all three funerals, and each time I struggled with what to say, and the word irreversible came to mind with great force. These deaths couldn't be reversed. It's over. That's it. Death is final. On the day Bob made his last dive, Yancey was actually sitting at the University of Chicago in a cafe, and he was reading the book, My Quest for Beauty by Rollo May. In that book, the famous therapist recalls scenes from his lifelong search for beauty. And kind of the high point of the book is where he goes to Mount Athos in Greece. It's this beautiful, amazing, high, rocky outcrop little islands that have monasteries on the top. There he happened to stumble upon an all-night celebration of the Greek Orthodox Easter. He says that incense hung in the air. The only light came from candles. At the climax of that service, the priest gave everyone three beautiful Easter eggs, splendidly decorated and wrapped in a veil. Christos Anesti, the priest said in Greek, Christ is risen. Each person present, including Rollo May, replied according to custom, He is risen indeed. Rollo May writes, I was seized then by a moment of spiritual reality. What would it mean for our world if Christ truly was risen from the dead? Yancey says, I read that passage just before returning home to learn that Bob had died. And Rollo May's question kept floating around my mind, haunting me after the terrible news. What did it mean for our world that Christ had risen. 
In the cloud of grief over Bob's death, I began to see the meaning of Easter in a new light. I saw that Easter actually held out the awesome promise of reversibility. Nothing, not even death, was final. Even that could be reversed. He says, when I spoke at Bob's funeral, I rephrased Rolomay's question in terms of our particular grief. What would it mean for us if Bob rose again? We were sitting in a chapel numbed by three days of grief. But what if after the service, everyone there went out into the parking lot and there was Bob? Bob, with his bounding walk, his crooked grin, his clear gray eyes. It could be no one else but Bob alive again. That image gave me a hint of what Jesus' disciples felt on the first Easter. They too had grieved for three days. On Sunday, they heard a new euphonious sound, clear as a bell struck in the mountain air. Easter hits a new note of hope and faith that what God did once in a graveyard in Jerusalem, He can, can and will repeat on a grand scale. For Bob, for you, for me, against all odds, the irreversible will be reversed. My first point's entitled, The Resurrection. If it's not true, Christianity collapses. If you think of the Christian faith as a, as a poker player sitting down at the poker table, and when it comes to the resurrection, Christianity would take all of its chips, push all of it into the middle, and say, I am betting everything on the resurrection of Jesus. I am all in. Theologian Gerald O'Collins puts it this way, in a profound sense, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. It is not Christianity at all. Why? Why is it such a big deal to those of us who follow Jesus to think that the resurrection happen. It's crucial because it vindicates and proves Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. It vindicates everything He ever taught, every miracle, every bit of teaching. It also demonstrates that His death accomplished what He set out to accomplish, the conquering of sin, death, and the devil. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus remains a remarkable man with inspiring teachings and loving actions, but not more than that. Just a wise and courageous, loving dude in the first century who got himself killed. The great hope of Christianity is not that we are disembodied spirits that go up to float on a cloud with a harp like cartoons would have us believe the great hope of christianity is that we follow in jesus footsteps one day we are resurrected just like him a physical body for sure but one that is wonderfully transformed for all of eternity a body that won't know sickness or injury or pain we get that from the resurrection appearances of jesus found in all four gospels we're going to read today from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. And my lovely wife, Lori, she is my life too, but she's my wife. 
She's going to be reading the scripture verses for us today. Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus appears to Thomas. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to pull out just a few things out of those passages, those verses. First of all, the state of the disciples. They were disillusioned. They were scared. They thought Jesus was going to be the leader that would turf out the Romans. But now He's dead. The Jewish religious leaders and the Romans had Him killed. Everything they had believed in for the last three and a half years seems to have been in that moment maybe for nothing. And then all of a sudden, there is Jesus appearing to them alive, resurrected. I love the reaction. The disciples were overjoyed. Yes, we thought all hope was lost, but it's not. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann has this great sentence. He says, God weeps with us so that one day we may laugh with Him. Not beautiful? God weeps with us. He knows what it's like to be in the valley. But He does that so that one day we can laugh with Him. Then it says this really interesting piece. It says, then Jesus breathed on them. The breath of God is life. Think back to the original creation account, very first book in the Bible, Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That idea is picked up much later by the prophet Ezekiel. He's given this powerful vision of a valley of dry bones, just Tons of skeletons lying on the ground. And the Lord ultimately says to Ezekiel, He says, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel goes, 
Lord, only you know. I'm not sure. And then the Lord says this. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So back to our scared and despondent disciples. And Jesus does this really strange thing. He breathes on them. But it's picking up all that symbolism, all that beauty that the breath of God brings life. The resurrection changes everything. Jesus is giving the disciples new life, new power inside the promised Holy Spirit of God. You know what? He does exactly the same for every person who's ever followed Him over the last 2,000 years. You know, we don't have to just dig deep, try hard, but in fact, new life is breathed into us when we commit our lives to Christ. The Holy Spirit takes up residence inside us. That's ultimately what sets the Christian faith apart from every other faith or world religion or belief system. Everybody has a standard. They say, work hard to try and get here. But it's only the Christian faith that says the standard is the perfect life of Jesus, and there's my Holy Spirit to help you get there. My second observation is, in a lot of ways, thank you God for Thomas, the doubting disciple. Because he asked the question all of us have wanted to, Lord, can I touch you? Can, can I see that you have a real body? Can I, can I feel the, the scars in your, in your hands the, the, where they pierced your side with a spear? Thomas's reply when Jesus says, yes, go ahead, touch me. His reply is so profound. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas is a good Jewish boy who has been trained since birth that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It says that in Deuteronomy 6.4. The Jews repeat that every single week. Yet here he is proclaiming Jesus to be God. Jesus to be one in essence with God the Father. Absolutely remarkable. The only thing that would have changed his entire way of thinking? The resurrection of Jesus. Thomas also calls him Lord. That means that Jesus has the control. Jesus tells Thomas where to go and what to do. In Thomas's response, really, that's the pattern for all of us who follow Christ. Jesus alters our paradigm. He changes our whole belief structure. My God. Once He has proven Himself, then our only response is to call Him Lord as well. The Bible doesn't know kind of a cheap, watered-down version of the Christian faith. People sometimes talk about Christianity as a get-out-of-hell-free card. The Bible doesn't know that kind of faith. It only knows a faith that makes Jesus your Lord. He gives the marching orders, we follow. Now the orders that He fill, gives fill us with life. They don't suppress us, leave us in misery. In John 10.10, 10, this is what Jesus said. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's why I wanted to take a few minutes this morning and explain why the heart of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is so vital, so crucial. 
Pastor and author Mark Clark observes this. If the resurrection didn't happen historically in real time and space, then Jesus' sacrifice didn't do what Christians believe it did. Sin, death, and evil have not really been defeated. You can't sit on the fence about the resurrection. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, we must believe and follow Him. In rejecting Him, if He really rose from the dead, is then a rejection of God Himself, what He had planned for your life. So, what are the pushbacks against the resurrection? Clearly, not everybody believes in the resurrection. Well, here's some of the famous ones that have been offered over the years. Number one, Jesus didn't really die. This is actually the official position of the religion of Islam. Jesus didn't die. He simply passed out and was thrown into a rock tomb. After a day or so of the cool tomb and the rest, it revived him. He regained his strength. He came to, he healed up, started walking around, and appearing to people. Problem is, it doesn't quite square with history. If there was one thing the Romans were really good at, it was killing people. They didn't put criminals up on crosses, only had to have them taken down and then head home a few days later. A man by the name of Lee Strobel began his... his uh, he was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune. At that point in his life, he was a skeptical agnostic. But God, annoyingly enough, wouldn't leave Lee Strobel alone. Kept intruding into his life. At one point, he and his wife and and their uh, child were out for dinner at a restaurant, and the child began to choke. There was a Christian nurse in the restaurant, and she rushed over. She performed uh, the J-thrust maneuver on him and dislodged the thing. She prayed out loud the whole time she was rescuing the child. Lee was amazed. His wife was really impacted. She eventually began to attend a, a new church. And this new church in Chicago really broke the stereotypes of what he expected Christians to be like. He would go with her a few times. It, it seemed like God was just jumping into his life in all kinds of weird ways. Lee Strobel couldn't get away from these annoying Christian people. He finally got fed up, and after a fight with his wife, who's kind of saying, you've got to figure this out, he decided, you know what? I'm going to investigate it for myself. And he thought, I'm going to start with the resurrection. And he had heard people before say this objection that Jesus didn't really die. And he knew that Muslim people said that as well. So he tracked down someone that he thought would have the academic credentials to give him a straight answer. Turned out it was a guy named Dr. Dr. Alexander Metherall of Southern California, who holds both a medical degree and a PhD in engineering and was a research scientist at USC, University of Southern California. So Lee Strobel made an appointment to come and speak with him about his theory that Jesus didn't really die. Dr. Metherall began with a description of a typical Roman whipping, that the gospel accounts all record Jesus going through. The Roman whip was made of braided strips of leather, leather with metal balls woven into them. 
and then bits of animal bone attached. The metal balls would bruise and soften the muscles and skin, and then the bone pieces would dig in and rip the flesh. Many accounts record people dying from the whippings alone. They never even made it to the point of crucifixion. Standard practice was 39 lashes of this terrible whip. From there, it was an exhausting journey to the site of crucifixion. The Gospels all record that Jesus collapsed upon the way. Once they were at the site of crucifixion, Jesus would be laying down with his arms outstretched on the cross piece. Romans typically use spikes five to seven inches long, filed to a sharp point. Spikes would have been driven through the wrist, even though religious art since then has always depicted it, but that wouldn't have worked. It would have torn through the hand. It had to be the wrist. And it would have gone through the median nerve, causing unimaginable pain. The pain of crucifixion was so over the top that they had to invent a new word for it in Latin, ex crucis, where we get our word today in English, excruciating, literally, out of the cross. From there, Jesus would have lifted, been lifted up and attached to the vertical piece of wood already solidly in place. His feet would then be nailed. At that point, it would be death by asphyxiation because the victim can only endure, endure the horrendous pain of lifting themselves up to get a breath for so long. The final detail that makes it open and shut case whether Jesus actually died was when the Roman soldier stabs him in the side and blood and water come out. Medical knowledge was not advanced in the first century, obviously, but today we know that phenomena is called plural effusion. When someone dies, the heart takes a clear liquid and it collects around the membrane of the heart. So when that soldier stabbed Jesus, it would have caused blood to come out as well as the plural effusion, which would have looked to any bystander like water. Absolutely no chance at all that Jesus survived all of that and revived sometime later in a cold rock tomb. So, many people acknowledge, okay, okay, he actually died. But I refuse to believe that he was resurrected from the dead. That's just too much. So what are the alternate explanations? Well, number two, the famous one was, well, the disciples must have stolen the body. This one is not an original idea. The Jewish religious leaders, chief priests, and the Pharisees anticipated this and came up with a plan. It says in Matthew 27. The guard at the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days... I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. If you think about it, it's almost Mary Magdalene's expectation when she goes on Easter Sunday morning. The empty tomb. 
Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. That verse ends, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples. They've taken him. I don't know where they put him. You can see her franticness, her, her, her bewilderment. What has happened? But there's lots of problems with the theory that someone just stole the, bo- the body, especially the disciples. Most obvious problem is that there were Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. Fairly hard for a bunch of Jewish fishermen to beat up armed and trained Roman soldiers, roll a walk, rock away, and then steal this body, which reminder that the custom was to wrap the body in strips of linen and put layers upon layers of spices in the wrapping so that the body wouldn't smell. That would have been a really big, bulky thing to try and sneak around the city of Jerusalem without anybody seeing. Second, and I believe the most convincing problem with this idea is that the disciples stole the body, is that they would have been basing all the rest of their lives on a lie. People have pointed out way back in the 1960s when Richard Nixon, the U.S. president, was famously caught in the Watergate scandal that all the guys in the inner circle pledged and swore to each other they would never tell, they would never break faith it took two weeks and most of them squealed they talked they were all in jail how could a bunch of uneducated jewish peasants keep up a lie for their entire lives also a number of the factors when we read the accounts of jesus resurrection there's lots of factors that make it really accurate and reliable scholars have pointed out that the accounts in the Bible appear trustworthy because of these type of things. The portrayals in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The disciples don't come off as these amazingly brave, totally heroic characters. In fact, they're portrayed as confused, scared, and really slow to believe. We just saw Thomas wouldn't believe until he touched Jesus All of those factors suggest these aren't accounts made up after the fact. Why would you portray all the key leaders of the church that way? They appear to be legitimate recordings of what actually happened. Secondly, women like Mary Magdalene were the first and key eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Again, Mark Clark is helpful. He says, in that culture, women were not allowed to testify in a court of law because their testimony was considered untrustworthy. So, if you wanted to convince people in the ancient world that your leader was raised from the dead, and you are making up the story, you do not make women the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. It would have been counterproductive. Thirdly, and most convincingly to me, is the need to explain why the disciples would create such an elaborate hoax and then be willing to die for it. We'd have to believe that these followers of Jesus unanimously held to something they knew was not true and suffered torture, pain, and death without a peep. 
Jesus' own brother James was tortured and killed, all of which would have been immediately stopped if only he had been willing to say Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. But he never did. Either he died for something he was convinced was true to the core, it was worth dying for, or he died for a lie he himself had made up. So, why did I spend so much time this morning on all that evidence considering around Jesus' resurrection? Bottom line is, if it's true, it changes everything. The resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity that he was truly God. It's the vindication of his inspired teaching. It's the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of everybody who ever follows Jesus. It's the basis of Christian hope. It is the miracle of all miracles. I was thinking a little bit this week about music. Every human being on earth enjoys music. We all like different styles. Some of us are into rap. Some of us are into rock. Some of us are into reggae. Some people even like country music. I'll pray for you. Just kidding. There are a lot of profound country songs, especially lots of albums by Johnny Cash. That dude was amazing. So, i personally not a huge country fan, but this is your pastor showing some love to the country fans out there watching today. I came across a song by Kenny Chesney entitled, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. You ready for these lyrics? Whew, preacher told me last Sunday morning, son, you better start living right. You need to quit the women and whiskey and carrying on all night. Don't you want to hear him call your name when you're standing at the pearly gates? I told the preacher, yes, I do. But I hope they don't call today. I ain't ready. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Have a mansion high above the clouds. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But nobody want to go now. Said preacher, maybe you didn't see me throw an extra 20 in the plate. There's one for everything I did last night. And one to get me through today. Here's a 10 to help you remember. The next time... You got the good Lord's ear. Say, I'm coming, but there ain't no hurry. I'm having fun down here. Don't you know that everybody wants to go to heaven, get their wings and fly around? Everybody want to go to heaven, but nobody want to go now. Someday I want to walk those, see those streets of gold in my halo, but I wouldn't mind waiting at least a hundred years or so. All right, that's enough suffering. We're going to stop the country song. But that's honestly what a lot of people think the Christian faith is about. I don't want to say in the clearest possible way this morning, Kenny Chesney has it all wrong. I'm sure Kenny Chesney's a great guy, and he certainly has a great country singing voice. What he doesn't have is any kind of true picture of what the Christian faith is actually about. What he presents in that song is a total distortion. He begins by having the preacher say that the main issue is how he's living. Too much whiskey, too many different women, all these relationships, too much partying. Then he has the preacher essentially say, clean up your act or your name won't be called at the pearly gates. 
So the basic message there is whether you get into heaven or not, whether you get salvation or not, is according to this song based on what you do or don't do. That, folks, is not the good news of the gospel. That is not the message of Easter. Because here's the real truth. If it is based on our performance, how good we are, none of us make it. None of us can do it. If we're totally honest, I'm a schmuck, and a little bit of you is as well. Listen instead to the true gospel, the true good news of Jesus Christ in, on Easter morning. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That is the best news ever. What Jesus died on the, did on the cross and then with his resurrection three days later paid the price for everything you and I and Kenny Chesney have ever done wrong, are currently doing and will ever do in our lives. That's the ultimate load off of our shoulders. We don't have to go through life burdened down, weighed down by sin and guilt. Second thing Mr. Chesney has wrong is that if he puts money in the offering plate, he can keep God happy and keep God off his back for a while. No, salvation is free. It's a gift. We can't pay for it. Third part of Mr. Chesney has wrong. As he says, life here on earth is full of whiskey and women is really fun, but going to heaven will be totally boring. So I want to make sure I stay out of hell for sure, but let's delay having to follow Jesus for hopefully a hundred years or so. And that is not a true picture of following Jesus in this life right here, right now, or in the life to come. I quoted John 10.10 10 earlier. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You know, if Kenny Chesney and I could sit down and have a discussion, maybe a cup of coffee, he'll probably pour some whiskey in his coffee. I would say, Kenny, I'm 48 years old. I've been following Jesus since I was eight, and I can honestly say it's never been a boring ride. Following Jesus led me to a Christian college, ultimately to a Christian grad school for a master's degree. Following Jesus led me on missions trips all over the world, Port Alberni, Kimberley, Mexico, Romania, Kenya. Following Jesus has stretched me and pushed me and refined my character. Following Jesus has given me greater purpose and hope and confidence than everything anything else ever could. I would say, Kenny, you think that following Jesus means you're going to have no fun, no fulfillment in life. I'm here to tell you, just like Jesus said, it's life to the full. And by the way, following Jesus led me to marry Lori. We've now been married 20 years, love her more today than ever. Been blessed with two amazing daughters, Callista and Malia. And I would say, Kenny, if you're super worried about giving up the whiskey, oh, glass once in a while is still okay. Easter Sunday is all about the assurance that our lives matter, that it doesn't simply fade to black when we die. But instead, because of what God in Christ did, rising again, 
we too have the hope of resurrection. Let's give the final word to Jesus himself. John 6.35, Jesus declared this. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus alone satisfies. Jesus alone is what we're all looking for at the end of the day. He went through hell to bring heaven down to earth so we can be in right relationship to God for all of eternity. That, folks, is why Easter is our Stanley Cup playoffs, our Super Bowl, our Academy Awards all rolled into one. In the early 1920s, communist leader Nikolai Bukharin was sent from Moscow to Kiev to address an anti-God rally. For an hour, he abused and ridiculed the Christian faith until it seemed like the whole belief structure of Christianity was in tatters, in ruins. Then the person chairing the meeting invited questions from the audience. And an Orthodox Russian priest stood to his feet. And he said, I would like to speak. He turned, faced the people, and gave the Easter greeting. Christ is risen. And that crowd that had sat there for over an hour listening to the Christian faith be attacked, abused, shredded down, instantly rose to its feet, every single person, and responded, He is risen indeed. You see, folks, in the end, nothing can stop Jesus. Not even death itself. Amen? Amen.